0: Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, help us to come with reverence, knowing that your word is the living and active. May it work within us, convicting us of our sins, working faith within us and driving us to repentance and obedience. Most of all, would you glorify your Son, Jesus Christ, through the clear proclamation of the gospel, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. you please open your Bibles to our sermon text, Zechariah chapter 5. You'll find this in the Pew Bibles on page 794. <clears throat> So, Zechariah chapter 5. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones." Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness and he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. As we've been working our way through Zechariah's night visions, there's been a subtle and yet noticeable progression. This becomes particularly apparent as we come to the sixth and seventh visions this morning. The first three visions focus on the Lord's coming to Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, and restoring the city. The fourth and fifth visions focus on the restoration of Israel's leaders, Joshua the high priest and then Zerubbabel, the governor from the line of David. In the fourth vision, we also saw that beautiful illustration of God's grace of justification. As Joshua's sin-stained garments were removed and he was clothed with pure festal robes representing the righteousness of Christ. But now as we come to the sixth and seventh visions, We realize that if a holy God is to dwell in the midst of his people, they must be a holy people. They were sent into exile because they had persisted in rebellion against the Lord. They had disobeyed his covenant laws and had ignored the repeated warnings of prophet after prophet. And so in the end, the final covenant curse had come upon them, exile. To the land of Babylon. Now, after 70 years in exile, they had returned to the land and they were being restored. Now, we saw an initial repentance and return to the Lord in the first verses of the book, but as we are now seeing in these visions, that wasn't enough. It wasn't the full purification of the people that was needed for the Lord to come and dwell in the midst of them. And so now they must truly repent or they will be sifted from among God's holy people. For the Lord is holy, and his people must also be holy if he is to dwell among them. The two visions here in chapter 5 are so closely linked that, in fact, some argue that they are, in fact, just one vision. I'm not quite convinced Although it would nicely bring the total number of visions to that perfect number seven instead of eight. But we will study them together here this morning as they both deal with this one theme of dealing with Israel's sin. In the first, sinners are destroyed. In the second, the sin is carried away. The take-home message here really is a call to repentance. This is what will happen to you if you do not repent of your sins, if you do not turn from them and turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. The rebuilding of the temple, the coming of the Lord to dwell with his people, it's glorious good news, but only if you're trusting in the Lord and living under his lordship. For those who are living in rebellion, worshiping other gods, or even simply serving themselves, they could not continue to live in the land where the Lord reigns supreme. So we'll look at at our text in three parts this morning. First, the vision of the flying scroll. Second, the vision of the basket. And third, we'll consider how these visions point forward to our Lord Jesus Christ, who deals with our sins. So first, the vision of the flying scroll. Verse 1, again, I lifted my eyes and I saw... And behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. As Zechariah sees the scroll, a few things stand out right away. First, we notice its great size. 20 cubits by 10 cubits would be about 30 feet by 15 feet. It's like a massive billboard in the sky shouting its message to all who see it. While an ordinary scroll might actually be this long, 30 feet long, when it's completely unfurled, it would never be this wide. Second, we notice that it's flying through the air. Perhaps it did this all on its own, or perhaps it actually had wings that Zechariah doesn't mention. Then in the verses that follow, we learn that this scroll, it represents God's word. So the flying speaks of The swiftness of God's word. It is living and active. And when it comes in judgment, God's word cannot be escaped. It is like a heat-seeking missile that never misses its target. Now, this connection, it's a bit less certain. But when we combine its size and the fact that it's flying 20 cubits by 10 is the same size as the two golden cherubim with their wings outstretched, who stood in the Holy of Holies, with their wings spread over the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark contained the Ten Commandments, and the Flying Scroll reminds us of the Flying Cherubim. You may also recall that it was the cherubim who not only guarded the temple, but also guarded the entrance to the Garden of Eden, along with the flaming sword, after Adam and Eve's fall into sin. And so there may be here a reference to God's angel warriors as this scroll will be bringing judgment upon lawbreakers. In verse 3, we are told that the scroll is the curse which goes out upon the whole land, which here refers to all the land of Judah where God's people were dwelling. The angel mentions two particular categories of sinners that will be punished by this curse. Everyone who steals... And everyone who swears falsely. Now, this first is a violent violation of the eighth commandment to not steal. And we learn in verse four that they were swearing falsely, specifically by the name of the Lord. Now, the commentators debate whether this was a violation of the ninth commandment to not bear false witness in court or break an oath, or a violation of the third commandment to not take the name of the Lord in vain. I think the way it's worded makes it clear that a violation of the ninth commandment is primarily in view. However, if you swear falsely by in the name of the Lord, say, you say, make a false statement and you say, in the name of the Lord, this is true, you're breaking the ninth commandment, but then you're also taking the name of the Lord in vain. So you're also breaking the third commandment as well. And so these sinners are breaking both tables of the law, sinning against both God and man. So while only two sins, or maybe you could even say three, are mentioned, it's quite likely this is just a summary of all that's written on this giant scroll. Perhaps it contains all the curses of the covenant that are contained in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28 for disobeying the law of God. Perhaps these two are highlighted because they were the ones most plaguing the community at this time. Thievery and lying to cover it up may have become commonplace because the people were poor and because they were wandering from the Lord. In fact, the mentions of weights and measures in the next vision brings to mind this sin of unjust measures, which was a common and yet subtle way of stealing. You simply use lighter measures when you're selling a product to give the customer less, and heavier weights when you're buying something to gain more for yourself. But what are you doing? You're actually stealing and defrauding your neighbor. Now here I do have to address briefly an issue of translation, and I always hesitate to do this, but the Hebrew word translated twice, shall be cleaned out in the ESV, is translated acquitted, that is declared innocent, in every other instance of the, in the Bible, except just one place, In Isaiah. The ESV translation is also problematic because in the Hebrew the verb is in the past tense, but the ESV puts it in the future to make the translation make sense. But I would argue the natural translation here is to use the regular meaning, acquitted, in the past tense as it is in the Hebrew. So the resulting translation of verse 3 is this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land because. Everyone who steals, according to what is on one side, has been acquitted. And everyone who swears falsely, according to what is on the other side, has been acquitted. Now, what may have been happening is that the thieves had first stolen, and then when confronted, they had falsely sworn in the name of the Lord that they were innocent. And so they were acquitted before men. But this only increased their guilt in the eyes of God. And so God is now responding by sending out his curse. The human systems of justice had broken down, and so God himself will now bring justice against these lawbreakers. And so this brings us to verse 4. What will this curse do? I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief, and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house, and consume it, both timber and stones. In verse four, the Lord sends out the scroll. He sends out his swift and powerful word, and we know that God's word always accomplishes his purpose, as we read earlier in Isaiah 55. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be, that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. Oh, in Isaiah fifty-five, it's a word for blessing, giving produce and food and bread and seed. But here we see it is a curse for destruction. And so the scroll enters the house of the thief or the liar, and it dwells there like an unwelcome house guest. And once there, the curse destroys the house from within. Consuming both timber and stones is a way of speaking of complete and utter destruction. The implication is that the lawbreakers are destroyed as well. Now, this is God's way of cleansing the land of evil, making it into a holy land for a holy people in which the holy God will dwell within his holy temple. The Lord himself will do this. He will do it through his word, which is sent out. But remember, the threat of a coming judgment from the Lord is always a call to repentance. When Jonah called out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The people repented. And so the Lord relented. And the judgment did not fall on them. And so it may be in this case as well. Or perhaps destruction would come upon the lawbreakers. And only those who were trusting in the Lord will remain in the land. But this scroll of cursing is only the first part of the Lord's cleansing of sin. From among his people. This brings us to part two the vision of the basket of wickedness carried away. In verse 6, Zechariah looks and he sees a basket going out, and the angel tells him it is all the iniquity in all the land. The word for basket refers specifically to an ephah, a measuring basket, which is about the size of a five gallon basket today. Then we read in verse 7, And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. With the basket being only about five gallons in size, we're either dealing with things that don't quite obey the laws of physics, because this is a, a vision, and so these kinds of things can happen, Or, what I think is better, what I believe, is that this isn't a normal, full-size woman, but rather, she's the size of a figurine. She is an idol. The woman is identified here as wickedness. What is the significance of this? Of course, wickedness can refer to all sorts of sin. The lead cover is literally a talent of lead, and this combined with An Ephah basket makes us think of sins of the marketplace, sins of unjust weights and measures, as talent and Ephah are both weights and measures. We also have the mentions of stealing, swearing falsely, using the Lord's name in vain in the previous section. So perhaps those are in mind. If I'm correct that this is an idol, this brings to mind idolatry in all its forms, which continually plagued God's people. One possibility that fits well is that the Hebrew word for wickedness, Harishah is a near anagram for the Canaanite god Asherah, which was often worshipped in Israel. And so this may be identifying the statue of the woman with Asherah and mocking her as a false god. In verse 8, we see how the angel thrusts the woman back into the basket and slams the heavy lead cover over on top of her. It's putting her in a prison, so to speak. This is a picture of how God restrains wickedness and idolatry that the woman represents. And we often don't think about how much worse the world would be if it were not for God's common grace restraining sin. And he restrains sin not just in believers, but even among non-believers. We are not as bad, and the world is not as bad as it would be if God were not Actively restraining sin by his common grace, and we see in verse nine that the basket is carried off by two more women who have wings like the wings of a stork. A stork is a large migratory bird with powerful wings, which was well known in Israel. Zechariah then asks the angel where the women are taking the basket, and he tells her in verse eleven to the land of Shinar to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. And perhaps you recognize the land of Shinar, for it is another name for the plain on which the tower of Babel was, prepared, was built, later to be called the city of Babylon. The fact that these two women will build a temple for this woman of wickedness reveals that they are not the Lord's angels. If anything, they are fallen angels, servants of Satan And servants of this false God. They will set the idol down on its base in its house, its temple, where it will be worshiped by the godless people of Babylon. As we survey all this, we see a great contrast. Whereas God's people were originally carried out of Egypt on eagle's wings to be established in the promised land and build a temple for the Lord, and then later, They came out of exile in Babylon back to the promised land to rebuild the Lord's temple. Now we see this wicked idol is carried on storks' wings to be deposited in an anti-temple in the unholy land of Babylon. Whereas in the most holy place of the Lord's temple stood the Ark of the Covenant holding the Ten Commandments, in this anti-temple there stands an anti-Ark guarded not by cherubim, the Lord's angels, but by these fallen angels, with an idol of wickedness in the heart of this anti-temple. This vision, it contains an implicit threat, but also a promise to the people who have recently returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. It is saying first, the threat, if you Continue in your wickedness. If you are serving any God besides the one true God, then you don't belong here. And you will be carried off back to Babylon. And second, the promise for those who are true to the Lord, there's the blessing of wickedness and idolatry being rooted out of their midst also carried off to Babylon. And so the Lord, he has returned to his people. His temple is being rebuilt and he is cleansing his people. And that means a sifting of the wheat from the chaff. In light of these visions, the people must return to the Lord. They must repent of their sins and trust in him for grace and forgiveness. These visions are also pointing forward. If you recall back in chapter 3, we notice the language of the branch, the coming branch and the language of that day. That day when the Lord would remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. And all these promises were pointing forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that he came to deal with our sins the way we, looking back now from the future, say he has dealt with our sins. And so that brings us to part three, considering how these things pointed forward to Jesus Christ. As we saw in the first vision, God's word brings a curse on sinners. And the scriptures clearly teach that the just penalty for sin, the curse for sin, is death eternal death and damnation. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Galatians 3.10 The truth is we cannot keep all of God's law. We all fall short. And so the only way to be delivered from this curse is if you have a substitute. If someone else bears the curse in your place Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree Galatians 3:13 And so the good news is that if you are trusting in Christ he received God's curse in your place on the cross not only that, but Scripture also says in Colossians 2:13 and 14, "And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. The hard truth is that God's curse on sin will either come down on the sinner or it will come down on the substitute, on Jesus Christ. And so the question is, are you taking shelter under the cross? If so, then Jesus has dealt with your sins once and for all. Jesus' work on the cross also connects with the second vision, this vision of Carrying our wickedness away. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was to place his hands on the head of a goat and confess the sins of the people, symbolically transferring all their sin, all their guilt, onto that goat. This goat was called the scapegoat, and he was then led away into the wilderness, a sign of the people's sins being carried away, By the Lord, very similar to the way this this basket of iniquity and wickedness was carried off to Babylon. This is very one reason why it was necessary for Jesus to be led out of the city, led outside the gate for his crucifixion, as he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And so it is that Jesus is our scapegoat. We confess our sins to him. He bears our sins on the cross. He carries them away from us. And so Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. By Christ's work, we are justified. That is, our sins are forgiven and we are declared righteous in God's sight. But Jesus also calls us to be holy, to walk in holiness in response to his saving work. As I've emphasized so many times in this sermon series, Christ is building his temple. And you, brothers and sisters, you are that temple as God's spirit dwells within you. And that means you must be a holy temple. As he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy for I Am holy. First Peter one fifteen and sixteen. Paul applies this in First Corinthians six eighteen through twenty. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify your God, glorify God in your body. Now here in these verses, Paul, he's applying this principle to the sin, one sin in particular, the sin of sexual immorality. But this same principle applies to every other sin. Since God has moved in by his spirit, sin must move out. God's holy temple must be cleansed all the way through. And this work of sanctification, the process of becoming holy, this is the work we must do. It may sometimes be a slow, arduous process. Two steps forward, one step back as we are mortifying sin, putting it to death. But this is the spiritual battle that Christ has called us to fight. And how do we do it? We do it with gratitude for the grace of God. The grace that God has shown us in saving us. And we do it knowing that the Holy Spirit is at work within us. Giving us the strength to fight. And we also do it knowing that this battle will one day come to an end. We saw in the second vision the woman in the basket carried off to Babylon. She turns up again In the book of Revelation, Revelation 17, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. In Revelation, Babylon represents the false worship of our godless world with all its seductions. But in the end, when Christ the King returns, Babylon will fall. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Revelation chapter 18 and 19. At the end of the day, you must choose who you will worship. Will you worship the one true God through his son, Jesus Christ? Or will you be seduced by Babylon, the harlot? And you must also know that God's curse will come down. It will either come down on you for your sins or on Christ in your place because you have trusted in him and he is your substitute. I urge you to take shelter under the cross of Christ. And if you have trusted in him, then you also receive his spirit and you are a living stone in his holy temple. That also means you must dedicate yourself to that good and yet challenging work of becoming holy even as your heavenly father is holy. And so let us press forward in this, out of gratitude to God and by his power at work within us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise for you are a holy God. And in you there is only pureness, righteousness, light and life. We thank you that you have redeemed us out of darkness and brought us into your marvelous light. Jesus Christ has borne the curse for us. He has taken our record of sin and nailed it once and for all to the cross. He has carried our sins away. And so you have declared us righteous. There is still sin dwelling in our bodies. And yet you do not leave us as we are. We thank you that your spirit is at work in us for our sanctification. And so, Father, help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, even as you are at work within us. Grow us in righteousness. Make us like our Savior. Keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil. We pray in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.